do you think? Have America's forever wars gone on long enough? Is it possible that with a new administration and the voice of the people, perhaps there could be a different plan? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. President Biden is appreciated not just because he is not Trump, but to the pleasant surprise of many, he's clearly focused on acting quickly to effectively shift America back toward the aspirational goals of our country's founders, a redefined government, one that exists to serve the common good. He's taking on COVID, climate change, and renewed and redefined economic strength. He even called out systemic racism in his inaugural speech. Very soon, the new president will be faced with a major test on something no president has dared to face since Gerald Ford, ending our longest war. Then it was Vietnam, today it's Afghanistan. And in both cases, there was simply no way the U.S. military could have any way of what be co- could be called a win. As our guest today, William Astori, asks, given all the positive steps Biden is taking, isn't this new beginning a unique opportunity to at last take an honest look at what our many decades of undefined war in countries all over the world have gotten us? Trillions and trillions of dollars have perhaps just gone down the drain. Maybe, just maybe, it's a moment to reintroduce a word not heard in the American vocabulary in this century. Peace. Maybe there's a better way to yield actual, meaningful national security. William Astori is a retired lieutenant colonel, USAF, and professor of history and senior fellow at the Eisenhower Media Network, an organization of critical veteran, military, and national security professionals. His personal blog is Bracing Views. His new article on Tom Dispatch asks about the power of example Biden talked about at the inaugural address, address and offers suggestions for a multi-point plan to end war as we know it. Sounds good to me. Thanks for being with us, William. Hey, thanks a lot for having me again, Bert. Many Americans in the 40s uh, agree that the 46th president has made some terrific new appointments to his cabinet, transportation, interior, and many others. He's focused laser-like on the pandemic his predecessor ignored. He's serious about climate change. But what about those in charge of foreign and military policy? Biden has talked about restoring diplomacy and giving life back to the State Department. Lloyd Austin, his secretary of what is euphemistically called defense, is from the ranks of the department of which he is now in charge. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken does not appear to be in the mold of hawkish Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. No one could expect a sudden, radical new defense policy, not overnight. Is President Biden now locked into more of the same old, same old? Or over time, might there be room to move in a new direction? It seems to me he has to walk a tightrope, at least starting out of the starting gate. Politically, does not he have to say, God bless our troops? Might there be method in his caution? What do you think, Bill? Oh, well, uh, yeah. Uh, (laughs) 
I, I wish I, I wish Biden was a man of vision, but unfortunately, he doesn't appear to be that that kind of person. Uh, you know, uh, Biden said something about nothing would fundamentally change uh, from the Obama years if if you voted for for Joe Biden, and and so far that appears to be a case, the case. You know, when it comes to foreign policy, when it comes to the military, as you said in your in your introduction. That that word peace, uh, we just don't hear that word peace uh, anymore. Yeah. Uh, even in Afghanistan, I mean, once again, we we see a war that's going into its twentieth year, in which there's there's regress rather than progress. You know, the Taliban has more control over Afghanistan than it ever has, uh, despite all the you know the trillion dollars or so and the American troops and the the, the commitment over the last twenty years, and yet so far. Uh, Biden has not expressed any kind of, of radical change in 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 uh, in our policy toward uh, Afghanistan, nor has he suggested that we could make any kind of cuts to the, uh, as you said, euphemistically, right. the, the defense budget, <laughs> otherwise known as the war budget. Right. Well, I, I, I wonder, doesn't he, I mean, there is politics here. I know, oddly enough, in government, there's also politics. He Doesn't he have to sort of walk a tightrope? I mean, here he is just fresh on the job. He has to say, God bless our troops. Uh, I feel, you know, like, I think he, he just has to do that. He's trying to be president of all of America, not just, you know, we on the left. But might there be method in his in his cautious approach to uh, to this, or or do you think he's just going to go on with more of the same? Uh, uh, you know, nothing would change after Obama. Well, you know, only only time will tell, yeah, right? But yeah. you know, sometimes sometimes personnel they say personnel is policy, yeah. and and he you know he didn't pick anyone from the Sanders wing of the party to have in any kind of a major role. Uh, in in the defense or or foreign policy or, or the State Department, mm. you know, there's really no strong progressive voice uh, in his cabinet. Uh, certainly not in in the realm of defense and national security. So so to expect any kind of uh, radical change in course uh, with with the people that he picked is is expecting a lot. I, I'd love to see it. I, I hope it happens. But uh, so far, right. I haven't seen much. Well, of course, I'm reminded of what the uh, head of the uh, Coleman Porters Union, A. Philip Randolph, he, he was talking to President Franklin Roosevelt about ending segregation and racism. And FDR said to him, I agree with you. I want you to, to get these things. Now go out there and make me do it. Yeah, exactly. People exactly. have power. And w with regard to Afghanistan... It used to be that Vietnam was America's longest war. And Biden has long been a critic of deployments to that war. And, and there is a deadline now. There's a much violated peace agreement that calls for a complete withdrawal of the remaining 2,500 American forces by May 1st. The American military, of course, has spent hundreds of billions of dollars and countless lives and limbs in that other longest war, Vietnam, and did not prevail. As, as I recall, when it finally ended with a victory for the Vietnamese nationalists, America pretty much just accepted it. Similarly, it seems inevitable that the indigenous Afghanis are inevitably going to win. So many deaths and dismemberment happened so Johnson and 
Nixon wouldn't lose face. Does Biden have to somehow look tough in this situation? Your thoughts on what he can do before the deadline? You know, isn't it funny? Isn't it funny, Bert, that that our idea, the American idea of looking tough, excuse me, is to is to keep going in a war that's already lost. To me, that's not looking tough. That's just being stupid. I mean, if, if Biden wants to look tough, really tough, he'll take on the military industrial congressional complex. Uh, he, you know, he'd have the guts to come out and say, look, this is a lost war. I've, I've never had a lot of faith in the Afghan war. Uh, you know, we're going to leave this to the Afghan people to sort out for themselves. It's time for America to leave. And I, I think that's a tough message. Uh, and I think he can get away with it if he was, if he had the audacity to, to come out and say that. Uh, but sadly, you know, I don't know if this is really true or not, but it always seems like the Democrats are afraid that if they make any kind of move toward peace, you know, the Republicans are going to start calling them bad names. You know, they're going to start saying that, you know, you're, 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 you're commies, you're weak, uh, you know, that, uh, uh, you know, we can't trust you on, on war, you know, you got to look tough and so on. But I think it's a lot tougher nowadays, you know, given the militarism that we face every day in our country to come out for peace. Yeah, true. And it wasn't, uh, the war didn't end under Lyndon Johnson. It ended under uh, Gerald Ford, really. Obviously a Republican who would be considered way liberal by today's standards. But uh, the country didn't freak out so much back then. And does it matter that it was a Republican who faced the defeat? No, I, I don't think so. I, I remember, I remember Gerald Ford. I was, I actually liked, I, I liked Gerald Ford. Yeah, not a bad guy. Good old Jerry Ford, and you know, But you remember when, when the North Vietnam invaded the South in 1975? Right. Uh, you know, Ford did want to bomb again. He 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 talked about sending troops back in, and thank God Congress finally uh. came to its senses. You know, after of course this is after Nixon and Watergate and all that, and Congress is like, are you crazy? You know, I, we're going back to Vietnam. We're going to do more bombing. You know, it, it, it hasn't worked for, by, by that point, you know, we, we had been involved in, in Vietnam in a big way since 1965. Right. And, and sensibly, Congress said, no, you know, we're not going to do this. Uh, and then once, you know, Vietnam, you know, South Vietnam fell, absolutely, you're absolutely right. Americans kind of shook their heads and said, and collectively, well, that's one nightmare that's finally over. I, but I think that you bring up an interesting point. Uh, by then, I mean, there have been protests, 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 and millions of people in the street. We were tired of it. We were exhausted from it. I don't sense that's the case with Afghanistan. So maybe it will be more difficult to face the May 1st deadline. I, I, he's in a tough, tough position to pull them all out and, and face that, uh, you know, being called... Uh, commie sympathizers or whatever that the Republicans would say. I don't right. know. Going to be interesting. We'll see if we can do it. And of course, it, it will help to have, I don't know if Congress is uh, following this at all or what, what, you know, the people in the congressional committees that have to do with foreign policy uh, are, are geared up. Uh, they must, I hope they're aware of the May 1st deadline and are ready to, uh, you know, have something to say, some talking points that they can put out there. And 
Well, well, as you, as, as, as you know, what's what's interesting is, <laughs> you know, Donald Trump was elected in part yes. <laughs> on the idea that he was going to end these wars. Yeah. Uh, and, and he didn't, you know, he didn't keep that promise. Right. Uh, you know, he kept uh, 2,500 troops in there in part because of military resistance right. to ending the war. I mean, sadly, war is very profitable, as you know, oh, yes. as Medley Butler taught us, you know, back in the 1930s. And God, I, you know, I go back, I was, you know, I'm a historian, as you know, and I was reading newspaper articles from the 1930s. And Americans talked back then about the only way we're going to get war under control is to get the profit out of war. Mm. As long as war is immensely profitable, the, the war is going to continue. And I, I see that still today. I mean, look at our defense budget. It's, you know, $740 billion in change. Uh, you know, imagine if we had a peace budget. But, you know, there's no such thing as that. You know, even if you mention uh, Department of Peace, right. like uh, Dennis Kucinich did uh, way back when, you know, he, you get laughed at. Yeah, it's true. It's true. It is so profitable. And, you know, you know, and I know there are ways to talk about retrofitting uh, uh, military uh, jobs. Uh, right. This is coming at you from Portsmouth, New Hampshire, where where the Portsmouth Naval Shipyard uh, fixes uh, nuclear subs. They could right. they could make train components there, heavy metal things they could create a lot of new jobs. But somehow that doesn't get talked about. Uh, for- yeah, think of think of uh, think of Green New Deal. Think of wind turbines, yeah. and, and you know, look at what's going on in Texas right now with the yeah. Texan the, the power grid. You know, just just think we should have been as a country, we should have been investing billions of dollars yes. in modernizing and upgrading the power grid in Texas, based on the knowledge that hey, sometimes you're going to have these polar vortexes, and it's going to get really cold in Texas, and the grid might not be able to handle it. But no, you know, instead we're we're spending billions of dollars building roads in Afghanistan. Yeah. <laughs> well, which which let me ask the listener, which do you think brings more national security? I mean, investing in uh, the power grid or building roads in Afghanistan that the people try to blow up there? Bert Cohen, exactly. Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is William Astori, retired lieutenant colonel from the USAF and professor of history. We're talking about, well, we'll get to some suggestions that he offers, a multi-point plan to end war as we know it. Uh, and you do have unique credentials for offering suggestions as to how to realistically address what is now and has been for decades the exclusive domain of the military-industrial complex, which Eisenhower warned us about. And your article outlines a 10-point plan for Biden to, as you say, turn his softball into uh, rhetoric into hardball reality as commander-in-chief. Your first of the 10 proposals regards nuclear weapons. Now, I'll tell you, about 20 years ago, I heard some military expert who came to town. I cannot remember his name. He talked about how much money, how many billions we spend on obsolete nuclear weapons every year. On your point number one, what is the reality now, and what do you offer as a realistic change with regard to our nuclear arsenal? Oh, good God, it's totally insane. Um, you know, we have we still have these old land-based uh, ICBMs, uh, and I think the, I think we still have Minutemans, uh, 
uh, Minuteman trees. Uh, and, uh, you know, these are weapons that go back to the early, almost the early Cold War, the 1960s. Uh-huh. I mean, these things need to be shut down. You know, they need to be decommissioned. We don't need land-based ICBMs. You know, we have, we have the, the, the world's most modern force, uh, the most secure, the most survivable you know, nuclear forces is our submarines, the Trident submarines. Sure. Yeah. That, that is really all we need. Um, land-based ICBMs should be eliminated. We don't need strategic bombers, you know, like, you know, B-52s carrying bombs in, you know, toward Moscow, like in Dr. Strange. Right, right. There's, there's no need for that. Absolutely no need. Uh, you know, this idea that, you know, this, yeah, I, I'm an Air Force guy, so uh-huh. I, I've just, I've just denounced the two Air Force legs of the nuclear triad. So, you know, I'm already in trouble, right? <laughs> I'm saying basically the Navy can do it all. And, and I think what we need to do, though, even better than, than that is, you know, is, is working toward nuclear disarmament around the globe. Uh, because let's face it, any kind of war where we start lobbing mm. nuclear bombs at each other is a war that humanity has lost. Yeah. No, it's just completely unrealistic and... Uh... Uh, the, the nuclear bombs. It, 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 do, are we threatened by nuclear bombs from Russia or even China these days? I, I just we have other more real threats. That's that's not how they're going to make war on us. Well, yeah. What what scares me, Bert, though, is this idea that you know this this effort to make you know smaller. Uh, this is a uh, uh, well, <laughs> yeah, making smaller nuclear weapons yeah, sure. that. That that maybe you know we can envision using in a war, but you know something, still a micro nuke, so to speak. Uh-huh. I'm thinking you know once once you start using any kind of nuclear weapon, I don't care how small it is, sure. you've 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 you, I hate it's almost cliche, but you've opened Pandora's box. Right. You know you've you've uh, all kinds of, of of evils can can stem uh-huh. from the first use of a nuke. Oh well, at least they're profitable for now, making them. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Hey, you know, I I, um, I I went to Los Alamos. I went to Los ah. Alamos National Laboratory uh, in, um, in uh, I think it was 1991, 1992. I was still in the Air Force. I was a captain. And this was, this was right after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And, and it was kind of a depressing place back then because all these nuclear engineers were kind of like, ah, you know, what are we going to do now yeah. that the Cold War is over? And, and when, you know, our funding is cut. You know that they were they were really depressed and 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 kind of at a loss of where they were going. But I, I they didn't <laughs> they didn't need to worry because thirty years later we're we're once again you know thinking about a new generation of of, of nuclear weapons and, and we're wasting the brain power of of some of the smartest people in our country. You know, people who engineers who might be designing a better power grid are trying to build little micro nukes. Oh, my goodness. And as uh, I believe it was uh, Mark Twain who, well, he's reported to have said, rumors of my demise are premature. They, they, yep. <laughs> the nuclear thing kept going. And it's not so much, I mean, Russia anymore. I mean, it, it does seem that uh, Putin was upset that uh, his boy lost. Uh, but as you point out, uh, the official on the books fiscal 2021 spending for the War Department is 740 dollars billion dollars. And there's a record level. And while Russia seems to have figured out how to hack into our massive cyberspace, 
probably with the help of their boy Trump, China these days is looking more and more militaristic and dictatorial. I can imagine the military-industrial complex drooling over this new focus. Is Bi- are Biden's only options? Uh, what what are his options for an aggressive China? Uh, is it or his only options military options? What, it's a tough one, I think. Yeah, well, I mean, Ch- China to me, you know, again, speaking as a historian, when you look at Chinese history, you know, China is is not an expansionist military power. Uh, on on the oceans, uh, they, they've certainly uh, uh, expanded uh, over time on on land, uh, but but strictly speaking, the, you know the the the, the Chinese uh, haven't had that same kind of of imperial expansionary uh, goals that that the United States uh, has. So I don't I don't see you know China's main threat to the United States to me seems. Economic. Yes. I mean, China is dominating the world in trade. I mean, partly because they're not wasting hundreds of billions of dollars a year on on defense. Yeah, interesting. And and their technology is, uh, you know, they're really focusing on that. Uh, and Japan obviously cared a lot about their uh, strength on the oceans. But interesting, China not. Uh, well, back to your list of, of of points. Point two, Biden at least recognizes and prioritizes the seriousness of climate change. But no one in polite company would dare mention what you point out is that, quote, America's armed forces have an enormous appetite for fossil fuels. And you say that the Pentagon also has a sordid record when it comes to the poisoning of the environment, end of quote. Militaries in the past, of course, switched from coal to oil, they can make changes. What could the president do? And couldn't a solution be sold as job creation and and uh, affecting climate change with regard to the military oh. footprint? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, uh, the the our our military is a it's still pretty much a fossil fuel based military with 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 all of our jets, with all of our our global commitments. You know, I come out of I come out of the Air Force. And our motto is uh, global reach, global power. But when you think about that, it, it also means a, a global expenditure of colossal amounts of fuel uh-huh. uh, for, for our jet fighters, for bombers, for, for the Navy. You know, only, uh, you know, only part of the Navy uh, uses nuclear power. So I, I, think, I think I read somewhere, I can't remember the exact statistic, but if our country, if, if our military was a country, I think we use about as much fossil fuel as like Sweden. I mean, it's some, it's some absurd amount like that. So I think part of what it comes down to is you want a greener military. A greener military is a smaller military. Uh-huh. We, need, we, you know, we need to downsize the mission. I mean, why, why is it the, that the U.S. military, if we're, if we're, it's supposed to be the defense department, right? Yes. Not the yeah. offense department. <laughs> so... I mean, downsize the mission, bring the military home, uh, decrease the number of overseas bases, uh, and that'll cut the military's expenditure of fossil fuels. And before we get to the discussion of the next point on military bases, I have this sense, and I may be wrong, that that the military is not subject to the same environmental rules as as uh, non-military, and that you can just blow through petroleum products uh, 
pretty much willy nilly. I, I don't. It, is that the case? Do they have to play by the same rules? Yeah, it's 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 not something I'm an expert on, but uh-huh. I think what you're saying is true. And you know, when I think about it as well, you know, talk about uh, talking about the military and environmental policies. I mean, uh, look at what happened in in Iraq and Afghanistan with the military's burn pits. Uh, those burn pits emitted all kinds. You know, this is where you know they and the military wanted to get rid of you know munitions and and other toxic materials, and, and, and they just decided to, to burn it. Uh, and, the, and our troops were exposed to the toxic fumes coming out of these burn pits. And in some cases, they were, were poisoned. Their, their health was affected uh, adversely by that. So, you know, this is something that, you know, this is, again, it's kind of a military mentality. Well, we need to get rid of this. Well, we just burn it. Right. Uh, without thinking about the the environmental impact at all. And I can't help but think that the people who actually live there aren't crazy about it either. I yeah. Mean, they get yeah. a lot of the effects, but who yeah, who thinks about them? Well, on your third point, military bases. It's rarely thought of by the American public, but please tell us about the unprecedented global network of military bases and what your old service, the Air Force, likes to call, as you mentioned before, global reach, global power mission. How does this exacerbate anger and rage in America, which bleeds into real threats to the security of Americans, national security? How do these super money-consuming hundreds of bases, as you say, not enhance security but actually help stoke these forever wars. Can we really just get up and leave them? What about all those military bases? <laughs> yeah, it's not easy. Uh, yeah, David Vine, V-I-N-E, he wrote, a, he wrote a book called Base Nation. Uh, and he talks all about these 800 or so uh, bases that the U.S. military has around the world. Uh, it, it costs roughly a, $100 billion a year just to maintain this sprawling network of of bases, you know, some of them are, are mini Americas, uh, like Ramstein Air Force Base in, in in Germany. You know, we got a big uh, air base in Kabul and in, in Afghanistan, uh, and and these these facilities, uh, I guess the Air Force or, or the or the U.S. military would say, well, you know, we need these. Uh, uh, these are uh, force multipliers. Uh, this yeah. is this is how we project power around the world. You know, these are good things. Uh, but they but they come at an enormous cost, uh, and they and they also you know oftentimes like you know my, I know uh, our bases our military bases in Okinawa yes. for example uh, have uh, have caused all kinds of uh, controversy over the years uh, in in Japan and problems due to rapes and, and other crimes committed by U.S. troops uh, assigned there so so. I, those, those ba- a lot of those bases, in my view, need to be uh, closed. Uh, and it's something, you know, again, this is, uh, again, actually kind of interesting. You know, Trump, Trump was trying to downsize our, our profile in Germany. That was partly because, you know, he had a, he had a tiff with An- Angela Merkel mm-hmm. uh, and increase our commitments to, I think, Poland. Uh, but, you know, once again, Congress intervened and said, nope, you know, we're not going to let you Trump, you know, close those bases in, in Germany. This is the kind of politics we have in our country. Mm. Uh, even when somebody, perhaps for the wrong reason, like Trump, you know, tries to close our military facilities in Germany, uh, Congress says, oh, no, no, 
can't do that. Uh, And so we get into these crazy situations where the bases are never closed. And it's got to feel like an occupying force all over in in, uh, Okinawa and so many places. Huge protests. I don't know what we gain by that except the profiteers. I, you know, just seem to be, uh, they're calling the shots. And the power that they have over Congress. Whoa, that's been going on a long time. I don't don't know how we can, is there anybody in Congress talking about doing something about the bases? Is there any pressure on Biden to do that? I, I don't see it. I'm not sure the American public uh, even thinks about it. Your thoughts? No, you know, I, you may know I was, I was a Tulsi Gabbard supporter uh, in the, in the last mm-hmm. election cycle, just because, you know, uh, Congresswoman Gabbard actually spoke out against our regime changing wars and, and actually talked about downsizing the Pentagon. Uh, but for doing that, uh, she was smeared basically as a Russian asset by Hillary Clinton and by NBC News. So, so when you talk out of line, when you, when you suggest that the military-industrial complex you know, needs to be put in its place, uh, you really run the big risk of, of, of being of smeared as you know, weak on defense or, or some kind of uh, Putin puppet. Boy, it's tough to go against that. It really is. They're, I mean, politicians by nature are, are sensitive to they're all about getting reelected. I mean, I'm sure if the if the uh, Republicans, the 43 Republicans who voted uh, to acquit Donald Trump, if if they had the sense that their constituents wanted to convict him, they would have. And it's all about getting reelected. Never mind actually good policy. I don't know. And of course, there's money as a factor, just a little bit of a factor in their campaign. Well, yeah. Conference. I mean, two two things to support what you just said, Bert. You know, number one. Uh, is is that big budget that you talked about, seven hundred and forty billion right. in change for the Defense Department? That, of course, was passed with broad bipartisan yes. support yes. in the Congress. Uh, the other the other thing is you look at uh, Lloyd Austin, our new uh-huh. Secretary of Defense. Yes. Well, he, his confirmation vote in the Senate, I think, was something like ninety three to two or something like that, or 92 to 3. Mm-hmm. Only a handful of people voted against him. So this is one of those rare uh, areas uh, in Congress where just about everyone, Democrat and Republican, yes. supports a big Defense Department and lots and lots of endless, you know, uh, basically a blank check given to the military. And does it make it any make us any safer? Does it really help our national security, which is the phrase um, that's used to defend it? No, uh, it makes us less safe. Of course, it makes us less safe. Absolutely. Hey, if I can, if I can share that's, a story with you, please do. Yes, um, I always like stories. An anecdote. Yeah. I, I, I exchanged some views with uh, a, a two-star Army National Guard general, and he had a great story for me. He said, you know, one year he was griping about the his budget being cut. It's like, oh, you know, our budget's being cut this year. It's going to be a tight year. And his sergeant, his senior sergeant who was with him said, you know, you know, sir, that's a good thing because it'll force us to think. It'll force us to think about how we spend the money. And that's what we're not doing with our military today. We're not forcing the generals and admirals to think at all. They just buy everything, you know, good weapons and bad weapons. Uh, you know, that they, they just haven't been forced to think in so long 
that we're still stuck on this glide path to failure. Glide path to failure. What a, try that as a political slogan. <laughs> <See how far laughs> yeah. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Live. We're talking about our defense budget, and I use that term, our war budget. Our guest today is a retired Lieutenant Colonel USAF and Professor of History William Astori. We're talking about uh, suggestions for a multi point plan to end wars as we know them. And we are not powerless, as we will talk about. For years, it has amazed me how the American public became convinced we're powerless to do anything about ending wars. We didn't, I mean, apparently the military-industrial complex learned from Vietnam that we have this huge war budget. It seems exempt from the public consciousness about government use of our tax dollars, the common wealth. Of course, the war industry has made sure its contractors are in nearly every congressional district. What is the impact on government service to the actual common good? Can there be renewed talk of major, making major cuts in the war budget? How can it be made to be embraced or even listened to by the public? How can it be framed? Yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's a big challenge. I think, I think part of it, part of what our military has done very smartly, is, is to associate the military with, with patriotism. So, you know, high defense spending or high war spending is, is seen to be as, as patriotic. It, it's another way that we support our troops. Uh, and, and it's also another thing they've done very cleverly uh, is basically everything is classified now. Everything is secret. So, so the details that we would need to make informed uh, uh, decisions are kept from us. I mean, Dwight D. Eisenhower talked about in 1961, right. his famous farewell address. He said, only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry, you know, with command of the facts, uh, can corral this military industrial complex. Well, that, that's a key word, knowledgeable, yes. a knowledgeable citizenry. Well, Unless you go digging for this information, uh, you know a lot of a lot of what our military does overseas and in various wars, it's all secret now. You don't see it anymore in the press. The facts are are, are kept from us. So you know that's another way our our, our military gets its way. And it does seem like. Uh... There's been a concerted and very effective effort for the past 40, 50 years or so to cut funding for public education because if people are thinking about it, if they have the capability to do critical thinking, they might question it. So I think that's one thing they learned from Vietnam is to keep the facts from the people. You know, don't let the reporters in on the ground, you know, in their... Oh, you know, don't don't get me started. I was, I was a professor for, for nine years uh, at the Pennsylvania College of Technology. Uh, and basically, the philosophy nowadays is learn to earn. What, you know, you're not supposed to learn to be a critical thinker. Right. You're supposed to be able to learn so that you can join the workforce uh, and earn money. That, that was basically, you know, even, even my old alma mater, uh, I, I went to engineering school when I was an undergrad. Uh, you know, they, they put up on their website how much graduates Earn, mm-hmm. you know, in their first year after graduating, you know, with the the whole idea is, you know, to to I guess to uh, you know kind of um, um, t- 
tell the parents that, hey, look, you know, your little boy or girl, when they graduate from our uh, school, they're going to be making, you know, $65,000 a year as a mechanical engineer. And, and so it's all about how much money am I going to make? Right. Uh, what kind of job am I going to get? And it's not about any kind of humanistic understanding of the world or, or critical thinking, or, and nothing like that, sadly. Uh, education has, has, has changed. It's become more instrumental uh, over the last 20, 30, 40 years. Yes, for sure. And, and I was lucky enough to grow up in the 50s and 60s when Eisenhower was president, and we had something called peace and prosperity, at least for white people. Uh, and, and my parents encouraged me. They said education for its own sake. And we realized in school that America's founders emphasized the importance of widespread education that was essential to maintain a Republican form of government. And uh, the 45th president, of course, sought to impose right-wing myths in place of real history in our schools. And you mentioned journalism as one of your points. Today's journalistic enterprises seem to focus on pleasing the advertisers who pay their salaries. Sensationalism and celebrity has trumped investigative journalism, truth-telling, digging out, and presenting uncomfortable facts. I remember those days. How important is that to what we're talking about? And what's the, the hope of uh, reinvigorating that? Oh, yeah, it's, it's essential, but... But we've we we you know we saw what happened in 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 the Iraq War when you know Phil Donahue started speaking out about the Iraq War two thousand three I think he was on MSNBC at the time they got rid of him yeah. uh, Ashley Banfield gave a speech that was somewhat critical of of the Iraq War they demoted her uh, Jesse Ventura had been hired to to do a show I think it was uh, I think it was MSNBC I'm not sure which network mm. maybe it was CNN. Uh, and then they discovered uh, that he was anti-war. <laughs> so they just canceled his show uh, and paid him like the eight or nine million dollars that they were that they were going to give him. So, you know, anti-war voices, uh, anti-war voices are not heard that often. And that's partly because, you know, when you when you watch our network, uh, the mainstream media, yeah. you know, most of the military commentators uh, are ex-military officers. Mm -hmm. uh, so you get some colonel or general who has like 30, 40 years experience in the military. Well, what kind of, what kind of criticism do you think you're going to get from a person like that? I mean, they've been part of the military their, their entire lives, and they've been picked to be on these television shows because their views are known. And in some cases, their views are basically given to them as Pentagon talking points. Mm -hmm. So, so if you want a more critical uh, um, analysis of our military, you have to go. You know, you have to go online. You right. have to go to alternative sources. You have, you have to, to go to somebody like you. Yeah, true. <laughs> yeah, and 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 uh, do some actual digging. You know, put in a little effort rather than just sit there and have it handed to you on your right. you know, couch as we're locked down by uh, COVID. And y your fifth point, quite frankly, initially sounds unrealistic. Dennis Kucinich ran for president, calling for a Department of Peace. We notice he did not win. Uh, as as you say, currently, the U.S. military is all about power projection, domination of the global battle space, and similar buzzwords that add up to exporting violence ab ab abroad. But 
pardon the expression, greater bang for the buck, as you write, if the U.S. government can create a space force just to fulfill the fantasies of Donald Trump, why not a peace force, too? Well, is it a mere fantasy? Can, can such a new department actually yield results that people could appreciate and recognize? And can, can public pressure, I mean, people feel like, I can't call for peace, nobody else is doing it. You know, they, they, they feel like uh, they believe the sense of powerlessness that, has, that the powerful interests have wanted people to believe in. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think, uh, you know, I, I call for a Department of Peace, and, and I think Dennis Kucinich did the same, because I, I think people think that, 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 that peace is sort of like the absence of, of, of war. Uh, but but peace is you know more than that you know peace is something that you that you really have to work toward uh, that you need dedicated professionals working in that area uh, and that's the kind of of effort I think you know we need to to and and also uh, not just effort but the the incentive I mean part of the reason why uh, war is is so prevalent. In the United States, is as you know, it's that the, the huge side of the national secu- size of the national security state. Uh, yeah. There's a whole bureaucracy there that's entrenched, uh, and that will always get its its money, so to speak. Uh, and I think we need to create. Uh, I hate to say, you know, create another bureaucracy. I I really do hate to say that, but you need to create at least a structure in Washington that that is just as committed to peace as the Pentagon is mm. committed to its colossal budget for war. And there's plenty of people who could have a lot to contribute there who are really skilled at such things, who know about, you know, what works and doesn't work oh, in yeah. foreign yeah. policy. You, Go ahead. Yeah, Bert, you've probably heard of uh, Andrew Basevich. Oh, yes. Uh, you know, he writes for Tom Dispatch, and, yep. and he's, he runs the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Uh, and that's the kind of organization that could, could that could build a, on a, a peace initiative like this. Yeah, there's plenty of skilled people out there that are you know not plugging in their potentially wonderful energy uh, as well as it could be that could really serve to build our national security. Your sixth point is the AUMF, the uh, authorization of the use of military force. It seems that has left the barn door open. It leaves authoritarian power in the hands of the executive so that while we claim to be for advocating democracy worldwide, there's blatant hypocrisy for the world to see in just this act, the AUMF, the power that's been given to the executive. What should be done about the AUMF and war-making powers henceforth? Oh, you know, the, the AUMF should be rescinded. Uh, it's, it's no longer applicable. It's been, it's been stretched. It's been stretched like silly putty for, for, you know, for every, for every military conflict our, our military wants to get into, they can say, oh, well, it it has something to do with terrorism. Uh, it falls under the AUMF. So we're going to go do that. And, And that's not the way it's supposed to work. When America goes to war, we're supposed to ask for a congressional, uh, declaration, uh, right. So yeah, just just get rid of the AUMF. Yeah, that's kind of our founders knew what they were talking about when they put the power to make war in the hands of Congress, and these yep. guys went around it. I mean, and, and and your seventh point is for us to consider the meaning of the word 
the meaning of the words national security. Who can possibly be against spending money for national security? But what investments will better yield real national security? Yeah. Um, well, here's the thing. Uh, real national security. Uh, I think, number one, uh, when you think about it, what do we face? Uh, I think we, we face two big ex- existential threats in, in the coming years. Right now, we're uh, number one is a pandemic. Yes. Uh, you know, COVID won't be the last one. No. So we should be building a healthcare system that's that's truly national, that's integrated, that's prepared for future pandemics. Number two is, of course, uh, climate change. Yes. It's getting worse and worse. We're, we're seeing the effects right now in Texas. Okay, yes. So those are the two things we should be focusing on for national security. You know, not uh, the possibility that Kim Jong-un is going to send <laughs> a nuclear missile our way. <laughs> Trump's love partner. <laughs> oh, <that's laughs> yep. bizarre. Y- your next point uh, suggests that we reject what you call threat inflation. I hadn't heard that term before. Boy, have we fallen for that. As you say, terrorist acts are mostly the recourse of the weak when taking on the strong. The United States isn't going to stop them by getting stronger yet, end of quote. In places like Afghanistan, Iran, Yemen, and so many others, the people who live there see terror raining down on them from big, expensive airplanes and drones, all made in the United States. Clearly, in 2021, some interests are pushing for inflating the military threat from China. The Russians had amazing success in their massive cyber attack. But but what about cybersecurity and, uh, you know, ways to perhaps weaken uh, uh, the reasons, you know, to, to take the air out of the, the wind out of the sails of people who are so angry at us in places like, you know, Iran, Yemen, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, you know, threat, threat inflation is a, a, a big problem. And, and I remember, uh, you know, way back when in the 1980s, I was reading, uh, uh, I think it was Andrew Coburn wrote a book about, you know, inside the Soviet military machine. It was about threat inflation. Uh, and we, we really played up that, that Soviet threat. Uh, right. You know, so the Soviet Union was, was going to defeat us. You know, we needed to be strong. Uh, and then, you know, six years later, the Soviet Union collapsed. Right. So we, we in the United States, uh, and now I, I hear stuff about how, oh, my God, you know, China, yeah. you know, China's building an aircraft carrier. It's like, well, hey, guess what? You know, the United States has about 12 of them. So it, it's, it, it's not like, you know, it's not like, you know, China has one sort of obsolete aircraft carrier that that poses some serious threat. Uh, I mean, certainly, you know, cybersecurity is, is very important. Uh, yeah. And, you know, the threat of terrorism is, is always going to be there. But when I went on active duty in 1985, uh, we were already fighting the war on terror. This is nothing new. We mm. know how to handle this. Mm. We don't need to inflate that threat. Uh, interesting. And and people on the right have for years called for an end to foreign aid. Of course, we could channel such aid to medical, agricultural, educational, transportational aid, and the like. Your ninth point has to do with where the money actually goes. How is that expenditure now making us less safe? Well, yeah, foreign aid is a funny thing because a lot of times uh, the foreign aid is like, hey, we're going to send, you know, a couple billion dollars to Egypt, for example. 
Uh, and then Egypt goes around, turns around and uses that money to buy F-16s. <laughs> so it's sort of this weird thing where American taxpayer money goes to Egypt so that they can buy F-16s from Lockheed Martin. Uh, and so in a twisted way, it sort of supports American jobs, uh-huh. but at a very high uh, cost. Yeah. I mean, if we're, if we're going to be giving foreign aid to people, you know, should it really be in the form of, 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 of weaponry that is then used in, in, in wars? It just doesn't make any sense. If we're going to be given foreign aid, it should be, you know, aid for, that, that would actually, you know, help people, uh, you know, rather than make things blow up. And from my own memory, uh, in 1984, I was working for a presidential candidate who also ran in 72, George McGovern. And I remember at the time, he was saying, we could do more to dry up the swamplands of despair that breed than communism. Now you could say they breed terrorism with our agricultural help, educational help, you know, yes. and all these things, than yes. with all the military hardware in our arsenal. Yes. And, you know, George, George McGovern was... was was such a unique man. He was uh, such a, I would say, I would say, honestly, I would say he was a great man. Yes. Um, Would have been a great president. Not, not yes. And not, not many people know that George McGovern was a decorated Air Force pilot. That's right. In World, in World War II. He was. Um, you know, he, he was, uh, he was such a gutsy man. Uh, and he, he was the last president that I can remember, uh, last presidential right. candidate. Uh, but the last guy who really ran on a platform that made sense in in terms of working for peace, yes. uh, cutting the defense budget, uh, and and reshaping America's role in the world, and it was it was a a great great tragedy in our history yes. that he that he lost that election to Nixon in 1972. And he also talked about building our infrastructure, trains. He was really into building. Think of all the jobs that could... Anyway, what ifs? America has just come through an awful period, the uh, Trump period. Your final point is that in his inaugural address, Biden made references to Lincoln's first such speech, you suggesting he should have focused on his second inaugural address as America had just come through that awful period and we needed healing and hope. Tell us about that, please. Yeah, I'm, I, I think I, as a historian, uh, I agree with the notion that, that Lincoln's second inaugural uh, is the greatest speech any president has, has ever given. Oh. Uh, it's, incredi- it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a short speech, and yet the wisdom in there is, is profound. Uh, and of course, Lincoln wrote it himself. Uh, and, you know, he wrote at the very end of that speech, and, uh, you know, as he said, with, with malice toward none, yes. with charity for all, with firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. Wow. What, what a tremendous speech. Uh, the idea that, that what we should be working for as Americans is a lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. That is the kind of vision we need in our country today. Yeah, and coming through a terrible period, people are ready for some kind of renewal. And I know you're with the Eisenhower Media Network, and, and 
that the 34th president is having a bit of a revival these days. Why is that? Tell us about that network, please. Ah, yes. <laughs> um, uh, major uh, Army Major retired Danny Shurson oh, is, yes. is, our, is our leader for the uh, Eisenhower Media Network. And, and uh, actually, Ben Cohen of, of Ben uh-huh. & Jerry's Ice Cream is, is one of the, uh, is kind of the founder. He's a uh-huh. mover behind that. Uh-huh. And, and we're trying to bring together, you know, military officers uh, who, who are unafraid to speak out critically uh, about uh, the military uh, in public. Uh, and I would say critically and patriotically, yes. because being a critic of the military should not be, you know, like, oh, my God, you criticize the military. Uh, How dare uh, you, know, you? Don't you love the troops? Well, of right. course I love the troops. I was one. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the reason why I'm being critical is because I want to save their lives. Yeah. And their limbs, too. I know. It's amazing. I, I note one, I think, a positive sign in recent years, as you know, sports events have like necessarily featured military displays, flyovers, salute to military heroes, any person in a uniform. This year at the Super Bowl, we saluted new heroes, people on the front lines against COVID. I see that as a good sign. Your thoughts about that? How significant might that be? Oh, yeah. It was was a good sign, except for the three uh, nuclear bombers that flew over. Um, yeah, well. <laughs> yeah, we had we had a we had a B fifty two from the Strange Lovian era, a, a B one <laughs> bomber that you know resuscitated by Ronald Reagan, and then the B two stealth bomber. Uh, so we had three weapons of mass destruction, you know, fly over the Super Bowl stadium. <laughs> so you know, I don't I don't want to be too grim. Uh, you know, it's a great thing that we celebrated, you know, healthcare workers and said, you know, frontline heroes and so far and so forth. You know, but I was just reading an article, I think it was in The Nation, where the nurses, you know, basically saying, hey, that's great. You call us frontline heroes. But how about some more money for yeah, healthcare? Yeah, really? I know. What yeah, how, how about how about, you know, raising our wages and, and, and giving us more tools to fight this pandemic? Uh, you know, free Super Bowl seats aren't really cutting it. <laughs> True, and that's a real threat to national security. I mean, how can that not be seen as a threat to national security? Finally, there's Congress. They depend on money from what you call the giant weapons-making corporations. Hell yeah. It's the easiest thing to just give up. But a songwriter and activist, Bruce Coburn, is saying nothing worth having comes without some kind of fight. There's no instant gratification, listeners. How can you, uh, Bill, encourage people to be persistent in working for peace and new priorities and not giving up? Yeah, well, I write to my congressmen, congresswomen, senators. Uh, we, we just got to, we, we have to put ourselves out there. Uh, I mean, I do it, I do it by, by talking to you and, and, and by writing and, and all the rest. You do it by running this show. I think I think everyone out there who's listening, who who wants to to uh, to change the world, so to speak, or at least our our little corner of the world, uh, is you have to use whatever your talents are. Maybe 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 you're a peace protester, or maybe you'll write to your congressman or, or woman. You know, whatever your skills are. Uh, maybe you're an educator, and it's just mm. about you know educating future generations in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we all have to use our you know whatever we're best at. Uh, and, and try to change this this militaristic and and warmongering narrative that we've been on 
you know, for the you know, ever since Vietnam, if not before. Oh my goodness! And we can do it. You know, again, it's you're not going to have instant gratification. It takes persistence. Right. That's how history does change. Well, if people are interested in in following uh, your work, the Eisenhower Media Network, what else on that internet thingy? Oh, right. You know, I, I have my own personal site, which is Bracing Views, bracingviews.com. Mm-hmm. And then, as you noted, I write a lot for uh, TomDispatch.com yes. and Tom Engel- Engelhart, who's uh, really, I, I know you interview quite a few of his uh, oh, authors. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, Tom is, is really something special. As oh. he says, he's, he's, a, he's an antidote to the mainstream media. True. We got to keep on doing that stuff. And the Eisenhower Media Network, how can people look at that on the internet? You know, we're, we're still we're still creating that. Ah, okay. Uh, I think I think the website's uh, coming soon. Uh-huh. Good. Uh huh. Good. And and hopefully uh, people will be able to check that out. All right. Thank you so much. Very interesting and and always good to have you know a, a sensible focus from somebody who knows his or her stuff. Thank you so much, Bill Astori, for being with us again on Keeping yeah, Democracy thank, Alive. Thank you, Bert. Uh, it was a lot of fun chatting with you as ever. Thank you. in love.